Welcome to the Fairview Church Podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. I want to look to the verses that we read this morning, the verses that were basically the tail end of the passage we studied last Sunday. And I want us to consider the fact that John, which is consistent with the rest of Scripture, uh, describes two kingdoms that are operational in the world. And that there is a kingdom of God. It's also referred to as the kingdom of heaven. Uh, And then we see ultimately that being attached to Christ, the Son, as king. And so there's the kingdom of God. And then there is a kingdom that is referred to as the kingdom of this world. It's also referred to as the kingdom of darkness. And we see that that kingdom, at some level, uh, is, is attached to death. And we're going to see how that plays out. And the kingdom of God is, is attached to life. And so I want us to consider, first off, a kingdom with the power to take life. A kingdom that has the power to take life. And so this first kingdom, which is the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of darkness, is fundamentally organized around that power. Now, I want to look back at a couple verses that we covered last week, but just to kind of get ourselves in uh, that, that posture of understanding the context. John 11, verse 47, we read that, so the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? So I want us to see there's the chief priests and the Pharisees convene the Sanhedrin. And just for historical context, this is the Supreme Court of the Jewish people. These are the leaders in Jerusalem, the Supreme Court, that really held the power over Israel and over the Jewish people. And they said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so there is a power that these Jewish leaders in Jerusalem hold under that Supreme Court system, but then there's a greater power that's over them. And what is that power? Rome, right? And Rome is the world power. It is the great world power. And who ultimately is over the power of Rome? Caesar, right? So Caesar is this king that is the world power. And these leaders in Jerusalem are afraid of that power. Why? Well, because that power, Rome can ultimately take away their power over Israel. So there's this system that's operational where Rome is allowing them to operate and is allowing them to maintain their power. But if there are issues, if they can't keep things working rightly, then Rome could come in and take that power away. And so this is a power. I want us to see that the scriptures want us to see the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders being tied with Rome and the leadership and the authority that they represent, and, and that there is a, a kind of power that is, that is operating from fear and through fear. Does that make sense? So, so the Jewish leaders are fearful of Rome, this greater world power, and they exert their power through fear 
because their, their threat is that they're going to do what to Lazarus? Well, let's see, John uh, 12, 10 through 11. But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. And so they were threatening to do what? Right, to take his life, to take. And this is the nature of the kingdom of this world. The way that it operates is through fear and specifically the fear to take away, to take life ultimately, but, but below that, to take away things that are important, things that we look to for security. And so this is a kingdom that operates through taking, right? And the way that that's experienced personally is through fear. Now, the scriptures have shown us that there is this kingdom of this world. This isn't new in first century Judea. Uh, this isn't something that just started with Rome. This is something, uh, a kingdom that goes back to the garden. This is a power that scripture begins right at the beginning in Genesis uh, talking about. And Paul gives a description of this power and this kingdom that is represented in Ephesians 2, 1 through 2. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and the sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. So this is the ways of the kingdom of this world. So he says, you used to operate according to the ways of this kingdom, the ways of the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air. Now that's an odd phrase, but what is that referring to? Satan, right? The ruler of the power of the air. And so there is this authority that scripture tells us that Satan exercises over this kingdom, the the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. And so there's a spirit that is operational in the kingdom of this world, uh, right? That, that, is, that is something that affects just the common people, the people who, who are part of this kingdom, who operate according to this reality. Now, we see that this kingdom was not original. It is not how things started out in the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, we see that everything worked the way God intended, that God was ruling and reigning and people were receiving from him and following him and trusting in him. Uh, And yet there was a change that took place. And Genesis talks about this with the entrance of the serpent, uh, which is this ruler of the power of the air into the scene. Uh, there's a book by uh, a man named Ed Welch called Running Scared. And uh, there's a lot that comes from the sermon that, that uh, is from that book. And he has a quote that I want us to consider. He says, there was an insurrection in the kingdom as Satan, a creature, wanted a kingdom for himself. By successfully tempting Adam and Eve, Satan secured a following and laid claim to the earth. Once he had followers, He was the ruler of the kingdom of the air and fear became the norm for human experience. And so what is it that is the way that this serpent king operates? How does he exercise his authority? Through what? Through fear, right? And specifically, he holds people in fear Because of the power that the scripture says he has over death, 
right? And, and what we find is that death swallows up everything that is accomplished in our lives. It also swallows up in the ultimate passing of time, everything that's accomplished through nations and powers. And so there's this reality of this, this power of death that renders everything ultimately meaningless. Um, and, and this is what Jesus is referencing. He, he talks a lot about this kingdom. And he talks about the difference between the kingdom of the world and his kingdom. And he talks about uh, the way that di- the, each of these kingdoms operate differently. And so we read about this in Matthew six nineteen. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what does Jesus say ultimately will happen to anything that you have in the kingdom of this world? What happens to it? All the stuff that we have and accumulate. It'll be destroyed. Right, so anything that we are trusting in, anything that we have our security in, our hopes in, that is tied to this world, that is, is tied to this particular kingdom, it's, it's going to be lost, right? And the truth is we all know that. And that's often why we're so fearful. Because there's this insecurity. We are trusting in things that are not secure, that won't last, that can be taken from us. And this is something that Leo Tolstoy, one of the great authors of world history, uh, experienced himself. He had written the book War and Peace. Anybody read War and Peace? Nobody in here that I see. Okay, I was going to be really impressed if you jumped into War and Peace. Uh, but also Anna Karenina, so two of the great novels of all history. Maybe, maybe some of the, you have them in your house, like propping something up, <laughs> you know, it's massive bricks. Uh, but he had written these incredible novels. He had all of this fame. I mean, he was the greatest author in the world. And yet, right in the height of his success, he fell into this incredible depression and discouragement. Uh, and he, he writes about this in a biog- an autobiography. But basically, in the midst of all of this success, he was overcome with the reality that there was a meaninglessness to it all. That all of these things that he had worked all of his life to accomplish, he had given his time, he had given his energy, he had put his attention on them, he had, he had accomplished them, and yet he realized that there was, there was a meaninglessness because all of it could be lost. He said, I had, as it were, lived and walked till I had come to a precipice and saw clearly that there was nothing ahead of me but destruction. Right? So, so everything can be taken. Everything can be lost. And so because of that, he, he was depressed. He was discouraged. And this is the nature. Many, many, many people have, have experienced this where they've worked their whole life and had their attention focused on things. Again, whether it was career or wealth or uh, some, some type of accomplishment, uh, only to realize that it could be taken from them, that it wasn't secure. It did not last. And so this is how the kingdom 
operates. Because in this kingdom, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness, death takes away all that we care about, all the people that we love, and all that we have accomplished. Do we see this? The kingdom takes. It takes away the things that we care about. It takes away the people who we love. It takes away all that we have accomplished. And so because of this, death holds this fear over us. And this is how the kingdom, again, operates. And it keeps us focused. I want us to see, because the kingdom of this world is just as operational today, right where we sit, as it was then. It keeps our attention primarily on what can be taken. Does that make sense? It keeps us focused on primarily what can be taken. It keeps us in this place of fear and insecurity. Uh, But secondly, we're going to see another kingdom. A kingdom, not with the power to take life, but with the power to give life. Ed Welch uh, once again says, one kingdom is ruled by fear. Again, that's the kingdom of this world. The other by mercy and grace. So what is the way in which the kingdom of God, the kingdom of which Christ exerts his authority as king, how does he express and exert his authority over the people who are part of this kingdom? Is it through fear, fundamentally? No, it's through mercy and grace. This is this is the way in which his power is exercised. And this is what we see in John 12.1. Again, six days before the Passover, we're going to come back to that. Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus has raised from the dead. Now, this is the irony. So the power of this world that is represented by the threat to take away the life of Lazarus is, is being utilized as John tells us, to threaten someone who has already what? He's already been dead, right? And I think there's, there should be this irony, this humor to it, that Jesus has already demonstrated a power greater than death. He's already demonstrated his power to give life that's greater than the power of death. As we read in John chapter one, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. And this has been, this has already been demonstrated, but this is the nature of what Jesus as king and what his kingdom is like. Jesus' life was marked not by taking, but by what? By giving. Do we see that? Consistently through the gospel, Jesus is giving healing. He is giving love, right? He is giving truth. Ultimately, we see in the case of Lazarus, he is giving Life, And what this meant is that Jesus' life was also marked by a lack of fearing what could be taken from him. And this is what we keep seeing in John's gospel. What makes Jesus so odd to all of these Jewish people in Jerusalem who have seen other teachers, they've seen other rabbis, they've seen other leaders? What does Jesus not demonstrate? Fear, exactly, right? He's not scared, as we've said. He is willing to say these incredibly challenging things to these really powerful people who could kill him. And that's what they're like. We've never seen anybody with this kind of authority. We've never seen anybody who's willing to poke the bear the way that Jesus is, willing to say these things to these powerful people. But Jesus is not afraid of them. Ultimately, he speaks 
truth to people who not only could kill him and exercise that power of the kingdom of this world by taking his life, but to those who ultimately do what? They do. The machine operates the way that it's intended. And the leadership of the kingdom of this world take his life. Just as they had taken Lazarus' life, they take the life of Jesus. And this is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, that it is the rulers of this age that crucified Jesus. And this is a term that, that he used both to refer to human rulers but also this fundamental alliance between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of darkness. And so there is this principality and power rulers that, again, there's always this allegiance that's there. And so this taking of the life of Jesus by these powers led to his crucifixion. And what, so in our D groups, we're going through Acts. And there's this refrain that we keep seeing over and over where Peter or whoever it is that's preaching They're looking at some of these Jewish people and these Jewish leaders and they say that you crucified him, right? They're saying, you crucified Jesus. And then what do they go on to say, for those of you who've been studying Acts? But what? But God raised him from the dead, right? And they keep reminding them, like, you did your worst. The kingdom of this world operated the way that it does inherently and utilized its power to take his life, to do its worst. But... There's a bigger power, and God raised him from the dead. And, and this has been seen and displayed. This is the reason why the early church grew and spread the way that it did in Acts. And this is where we see that the resurrection, that the kingdom of God was present from Genesis on. But the full nature of the kingdom of God was inaugurated with the resurrection of Jesus. This full demonstration of Jesus as the king who represents this authority... Uh, over this kingdom was, was inaugurated at the resurrection. And this is what we see. So Hebrews 2.14 says, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death. Who's that? The devil, the Satan, the serpent king. He destroys the one holding the power of death. And free those who were held in slavery all their lives. How were they held in slavery? By what? So there is this power, once again, that's operating through this enslavement of the fear of death. Now, what festival is taking place at the beginning of John 12? The Passover. And what is the Passover remembering? What event? The what? The Exodus, right? Some of you guys have seen the great movie. The Exodus. And what was the Exodus? It was the people of God, and they were under, they were enslaved to who? To Egypt. And who was, who was the Caesar of Egypt? Who was the power? The Pharaoh, right? So he was this world power, that represented this kingdom of this world, and he oversaw the nation of Egypt, uh, and ultimately they were enslaved, right, under this power. And the Exodus was the story of how God delivered them and brought them through what? Through the waters? 
right? We'll see this. And into freedom, right? So this is, this is this celebration. Every year they're remembering, yeah, there was this power and we were enslaved and yet it seemed like there was no way out and yet God came and he delivered us from slavery and he brought us to freedom and life. And, and this is where ultimately Jesus is coming to fulfill the Passover. That's what Hebrews is telling us. That there is a greater Pharaoh. Again, the power that's greater than Pharaoh, that's behind Pharaoh and Caesar and all of these powers. And that's the power of, of Satan, the power of the devil, he says. And he holds all people enslaved under his slavery through the fear of death. And yet Jesus, through dying on the cross... And then rising from the dead sets us free from what? The fear of death, right? He brings us to freedom, this ultimate exodus, this ultimate deliverance into life, into this security and hope in God. And, and there is this tie between baptism, Paul does this consistently, and Israel. So when Israel went through the waters of death, what does Paul say was happening to Israel? That Israel was being what? Baptized. So when Israel walks through the waters, they were being baptized. And that when a person trusts in Jesus as king, declares their allegiance to Jesus as king, and their entrance into his kingdom through going in the waters of baptism and coming out, they are, they are being united with Jesus, with, with his death. So that and we'll read this. In this section on baptism in Romans 6, Paul says, Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. So this power of death no longer rules over who? Jesus. Right? Jesus has conquered this power of death. It doesn't have rule or authority over him. He has authority over what? Death. And what Paul is saying is that when we are baptized, we are united with the death of Christ. So we died with Jesus on the cross. That was your death. Right? You already died. You suffered all that he suffered. And yet you also, and that was what you experienced symbolically when you went under the water of baptism, but when you come out of the water of baptism, you experienced what with him? Resurrection, right? New and eternal life. And so what, as you are united with Christ, and there's so much behind all this, what have you been set free from? Fear of death, the power of death, right? And so what this means is the worst that could possibly happen to you already happened to you. Do you see that? And that now what you look forward to is not death doing its worst, or separating you uh, from God, from the people you love, from all these realities, but ultimately you look towards death as something that will only bring about a greater reality. There's, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about this. So Romans 14, 17 says, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. How, how, how can we have peace in circumstances that are incredibly stressful, difficult, fearful? How can we have joy in the midst of situations that 
are filled with sorrow and suffering. Ultimately, what do we know our future is? Who, who is our future aligned with? Jesus, right? So the story of Jesus is what defines our story. And we know that, that there will be the, the prayer of Jesus, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that true right now? Right? In, in its fullness. No, we see the realities of death. We see the realities of loss. We see the realities of suffering. Right? But will it one day be true? It will, right? And will that be something that we bring about? You see, there were people before Jesus, revolutionaries, that thought they could bring the kingdom of God through raising up these armies and overthrowing these powers. Did they work? No, right? They didn't work. You can't bring the kingdom of God, right? God can bring the kingdom of God, ultimately, and he, he will. And this is where Jesus gives all these natural examples of like a mustard seed. It looks like it's slow. It looks like nothing's happening, but it's working slowly over time. And in, over time, God will bring it about. We can be confident in this. And so what this, what this means is although it doesn't, appear this way now. We have this confidence. We have this hope that all things will work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Even death. You see that? Ephesians 2, Paul writes, he also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Is that something that will happen? Does Paul use future tense? No, he says this has happened. This is reality. So that in the coming ages, what will happen, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So what's on the other side of the grave in the ages to come? God displaying the immeasurable riches of his gracious grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So here's what I want us to see. Here's, here's the point of this. We know, for those who are in Christ, that what lies ahead of us is far greater than anything that can be taken from us. Do we see that? For those who are in Christ, what lies ahead of us, what is secure, is it secure because of what we've done or how we've earned it? No, but what Christ has done is far greater than anything that can be taken from us. And this is what marks us as people of hope. This is to be the mark of those who are followers of Jesus, that we are people of hope, right? Paul, in 1 Peter 3, Peter says that, that you give a defense for the reason for the hope that is in you because people see somebody who follows Jesus who doesn't interpret reality and history according to what they see around them, but the story and the promises of Jesus. And they have hope and people are like, that, why is that person hopeful? Have they not read the newspaper? Right? Have they not looked at social media? Why are they hopeful? This doesn't make any sense. And so guess what they ask? 
How in the world do you have hope? That's what Peter says is, hap- is going to happen. <laughs> They're like, are you, do you, how do you have hope? This doesn't make any sense. First Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says that we grieve. So when we lose beloved friends and, and brothers like Terry, we lose our loved ones, that we do grieve. We grieve the separation for a time. We grieve the loss for a time. And yet we grieve but not as those without what? Hope, right? So we don't lose the hope. There's, there's not a loss of, of hope because nothing can take away the hope. Uh, Hebrews 6.19 says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. What does an anchor do for a boat? Right, it gives it security. So naturally, on its own, in the midst of a storm, we saw a hurricane just a few weeks ago, the realities of these storms. What happens to anything, any boat that's out on the water? It gets tossed around, right? It gets blown around by whatever waves of what's happening. And that's the natural state of all of us, is we are reactive. Whatever happens to us is, is you know, we're either hopeful or hopeless. Our emotions are, you know, all over. And you know what the scriptures tell us is that we have an anchor for our soul. And where is that anchor? Where is that security? It's in Christ. Right? That, that is where our hope remains. And so, and so this, is, this is what I pray for for us. Because our trust fundamentally is tied to what, where our attention goes. So, so what is most real is, is where our attention goes. And, and where our attention goes, our focus goes, that's, that's, where, that's what we trust at some level. So, so what are we focused on? What are we most focused on this morning? Right? What is, what is most real to us? This is where I think sometimes we miss when we talk about reality and the kingdom of God and the spiritual world and all these things. It's not like this ethereal, you know, fuzzy out there in the distance Versus what's real and physical now, right? No, it's, it's the, the difference is what is most real. <laughs> Does that make sense? There's something more real than just what your eyes can see and what your ears can hear. There's a, there's a reality that's, that's bigger than that, that's greater than that. It's not entirely separate, but it's, it's beyond it. And so what's most real is what our attention goes to. Does that make sense? So our focus goes to. And so if we are most focused on just the things of this world, the situations around us, the way things appear, right, that will, the result of that is, is that will be how we respond emotionally. And that will be where our time goes. That will be where our money goes. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying where your heart is, is where your treasure is, right? And that's not just money. It's your focus. It's where, again, it is where your money goes, but it's where your, your, efforts go, your attention goes. Does that make sense? So that's the nature of it. That's how things operate at a, at a mass level. So the question is, what are we focusing on? What is ultimately real? What are we ultimately trusting in? And I believe what Jesus has called us to in this concept of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, it's to see a reality greater than the way things appear. Right? Because, because it looked like for a moment that the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness had won. The way everything felt and looked as Jesus hung on the cross. 
was that he had lost. The kingdom of darkness had been victorious. But was that ultimately what was real? No, <laughs> because God raised him from the dead. Right? And this is, this is the future that we have. This is the hope that we have. And so we demonstrate this hope by, so we think about the, about the word trustworthy. So when you think of somebody who's trustworthy, do you know somebody who's trustworthy? I know we all know people who aren't <laughs> necessarily. And I'm going to ask the band to go ahead and come up. But do you know somebody who's trustworthy? What is it that makes a person trustworthy? Loyalty? Okay. Yeah. What else? Honesty? Integrity? Track record? What is What makes a person trustworthy? Actions? What they've done? What makes God trustworthy? It's never ending love, his track record, what he's done. And so how do we demonstrate, you think about this. So Jesus is the good shepherd. That's what John, that's this imagery John has been giving us. He's the good shepherd over the sheep. And so how do we as his sheep, those who follow him, demonstrate that he is trustworthy? What is it that we demonstrate that shows he's trustworthy? That he's worthy of our trust? Listen, obey, do what he says. What else? What's that? We follow his his will. Do we trust him? <laughs> right, really simply. Like that's it. So the, the trustworthiness of Christ is demonstrated, displayed through whether or not we trust him. Do we see that? That's it. And the way that we know we trust him is we have what? Hope, <laughs> right? We have hope. And this is a display to the world that our king is trustworthy worthy. He's worthy of our trust and he's worthy of their trust too. And we call them to come and follow him as king, give their allegiance to him. This is what we're called to. And we're going to sing a song that I think is one of the most beautiful songs that speaks to both the difficulties and the sadness and the struggles of this world as it presently is. And it also calls us to hope and to focus on what God has promised to do, what Jesus has promised will come. And I do want to say, if there's anyone here, and, and honestly, what you are trusting in is anything that's tied to this world or anything tied to yourself and what you can do, that ultimately that trust is insecure. It won't last. So I would call you to turn away from that and to trust in Jesus, to trust in his life lived in your place, his death died for your sins and his resurrection to conquer the enemies of Satan, sin, and death that you cannot conquer and to give you eternal life. If you want to talk about that or, or if there's any other prayer requests, I'll be in the prayer room. We'd love to respond or pray with you as we respond. But I want us just to consider the words of this song. Father, we thank you that you 
are trustworthy. You've showed that in the past. You showed that in the resurrection of Christ. You've showed that in our lives, that you, you are worthy of our trust. And so, Lord, would you help us to move our attention, our focus onto you? Well, there are all these things and these fears and anxieties and insecurities that come from focusing on anything that's part of the kingdom of this world. Lord, would you allow us to fix our trust, our focus, our hope onto you as an anchor for our soul? We pray that your spirit would show if there are things that we're trusting in that are not secure, anything tied to this world, will we turn away from that and trust in Jesus and find the hope of eternal life in him that sets us free from the fear of death? And so we thank you that we hope that we have hope in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.